Hello, and welcome to Baker McKenzie's Resilience, Recovery, and Renewal podcast series, dedicated to helping your organization navigate the full continuum of the COVID-19 pandemic and beyond. Whether you're managing the immediate crisis, stabilizing operations, or evolving your business, this podcast will cover key insights to help strengthen your organization's capacity to respond, recover, and thrive. My name is Jennifer Northam, and I've spent over 20 years as a producer and journalist covering international business issues for leading news organizations. The COVID-19 pandemic has brought to an end a record-breaking bull run in global M&A activity. However, there are still opportunities to be found. In this episode, we'll be looking at whether there are signs of M&A activity re-emerging, what we can expect from the global M&A landscape going forward, and what prospective buyers need to know before making a strategic investment. Joining me to discuss the opportunities and pitfalls are three experts. First is Mike DeFranco. He's chair of Baker McKenzie's Global M&A Practice Group. We have Anna Mello, partner and global head of M&A at Trench, Rossi and Watanabe in Brazil. And Lisa Schneller, managing director for S&P's Global Ratings and lead analyst in sovereign and international public finance ratings for the Americas. And just so you're aware, we're recording this podcast from our homes in light of COVID-19 social distancing rules. Thank you all for joining me today. Mike, if I could start with you, it'd be great if we could kick off this discussion with your outlook for mergers and acquisitions. Can you give us a sense of whether there are signs of M&A activity picking up and what are some of the key themes that you see emerging? Thanks, Jen. uh, That's a tough question. Uh, Making predictions these days is always difficult. Um, Certainly, and, and not surprisingly, Global deal activity decreased significantly in the first half of the year. Uh, We saw global deal value down over 40% from the first half of 2019. But but we are starting to see an increased number of deals, uh, in particular as certain sectors begin to recover. Uh, And this is one thing I I think we can expect, that M&A recovery will will follow COVID recovery. And as we see regions flatten and move to the other side of the curve, you'll see a return to the M&A market. You know, for example, one thing we saw as we looked to Asia is that while there was a decrease in deal-making in the second quarter, uh, that decrease was not as steep as in other regions where, where the crisis came later. You know, we are starting to see a few themes begin to emerge. First off, we're seeing more and more tech transactions uh, with deals involving technology of some sort, uh, making up almost a quarter of global M&A in the first half of 2020. Uh, Now that includes not only tech companies uh, doing transactions, but also businesses in other sectors, such as industrials or in the consumer space, looking at assets in the tech space. I guess that shouldn't be too surprising as the crisis has accelerated uh, the pace of businesses becoming virtual, individuals moving online in in so many areas, uh, whether it be shopping, education, gaming, medicine, it seems like everything is going tele these days. Uh, In addition, you know, we're seeing some trends in the retail space. Uh, First off, as I mentioned, you know, tech uh, digitization, uh, certainly a trend in that space. You know, we're also seeing a number of companies in distressed situations, and, and I think you'd expect that that will lead to 
uh, deal activity. That, that deal activity may not be immediate, but I think we can expect to see it in the coming months. And Lisa, what are you seeing in Latin America? It's currently in the eye of the storm when it comes to this pandemic. What sectors and what regions are being hit the hardest right now? Yeah, indeed, Latin America is in the eye of the storm. Brazil and Mexico posting the most deaths most recently worldwide, along with the U.S. and and the U.K. Brazil has over, you know, 1.8 million cases followed by you know Peru and Chile, each over 300,000. They actually have the highest incidence versus the population given the testing they have there, followed by Mexico, which now has almost 300,000 cases. The bottom line, cases continue to rise across the region despite the lockdown measures and the high per capita incidence all present the challenges to the governments and policymakers. There's a very hard discussion between you know, looking at the economy, considering the health challenges and human lives amid less comprehensive health systems. But the bottom line is informal economies, inequality, urban centers mean that it's hard to maintain a lockdown. In S&P's view, the extended lockdown stresses can stress very much the strongest corporations, but with a real impact for small and medium-sized enterprises. And very few sectors have been spared by the lockdowns and the hit to the economy. Obviously, retail, essential, healthcare, pharmaceuticals, um, healthcare services, some metals and mining upstream, some railroads, telecom, they're the ones that we see recovering faster, quote unquote, the least hit. Then we move to some, you know, car rentals, some consumer products, oil and gas, refining marketing, next area. Then the, the, the company moves up the, the realm to kind of some retails and re- restaurants, some leisure activities, power, what have you. And then the last to come, you know, really transportation and non-essential retail as an example. Now, Anna, this pandemic, as we've just been talking about, I mean, there's a lot of distressed companies out there across a variety of sectors. A lot of these companies are looking for buyers and investors. What's the due diligence when it comes to potential buyers? What do they need to be aware of and how can they best really protect themselves in this environment? First of all, potential buyers should identify which stage of insolvency is the distressed company whether it is in early stages or if uh, already in the course of a judicial restructuring. Assuming it is before the judicial restructuring, besides the common aspects of uh, the ordinary M&A, um, I believe buyers should investigate the liabilities of the distressed companies, such as tax, labor, compliance, uh, as there will be the succession of such liabilities. And if seller is insolvent already at the time of the transaction or will become insolvent as a result of such transaction, plus if the transaction will cause losses to sellers, creditors, these may be causes to the transaction be revoked in court uh, or challenged by creditors in the future. And in addition, uh, it is important to investigate if there is any pending lawsuit related to the right over the shares or assets of the company or any pending collection or enforcement lawsuit, which could cause sellers insolvency as well, because these are also causes to the transaction to be revoked in court. 
So in terms of the protections, the careful due diligence on the items uh, I mentioned is imperative, not only due to the risky scenario of succession liabilities I mentioned in the impact on valuation of the company, but also to be in a position to negotiate more extensive reps and warrants, indemnities and guarantees provisions, uh, such as escrows or potential insurance coverage, as well as special uh, closing conditions. One thing uh, I think it's also important, if the distressed asset is already part of a judicial restructuring, then the due diligence should also focus on whether the company is in compliance with the judicial reorganization laws and the court procedures, and check uh, if the scope or the asset uh, put on sale is listed as an asset in the reorg plan of the company filed with the court, and whether such reorg plan has been approved uh, by the creditors. A very important point is that usually there is no succession of liabilities of the distressed company when acquired within the process of the judicial reorganization. But the transaction has to be approved by the judicial reorganization court. A McKinsey report showed that companies that were bold enough to execute meaningful acquisitions during the last downturn outperformed their peers by a factor of six. How do you think investors will be looking at transactions this time? Do you think they'll be more cautious? And in what ways do you think that this crisis really compares to the financial crisis of 2008? Well, it's interesting. I I don't know if they'll be more cautious, but I can tell you at first they certainly will be cautious. As companies are navigating uh, through the crisis, we're seeing so many companies, their their initial focus is, is on resilience. It's on tending to their customers, tending to their employees, tending to their own financials. Uh, you know, we're also even seeing that with private equity sponsors who, who spent you know, a lot of the start of the crisis looking at their portfolio companies uh, and maintaining their portfolio companies. But you know, as companies begin to recover and as they move to renew their businesses, I think we can expect them to use M&A as, as one of their tools in, in developing their capabilities and acquiring capabilities and developing assets and acquiring assets. Uh, now, the speed at which they do this is really going to depend on the company and the sector in, in which they're in. I don't think there, there will be a sort of one-size-fits-all uh, across the markets. Um, you know, I think we've already started seeing many companies in the tech space move in this direction, whereas in some sectors, you know, for example, consumer goods, you know, aviation, uh, many companies are, are still spending their time focused on getting through the crisis. It's just different uh, stages of the market uh, for, for all of them. You know, you're right. There are a lot of similarities when you look at the crisis and, and compare it to 2008. You know, certainly, you know, the economy being hit, certainly the, the stock market falling as, as rapidly as it did, you know, and, and many companies becoming distressed and, and facing challenging liquidity situations. But uh, I think we can say, especially with this crisis, you know, no two financial crises are the same. Uh, and every one of them brings their own unique challenges uh, and their own, you know, opportunities. And speaking of those differences, I'm going to put you on the, on the spot a little bit here. Because it, this pandemic crisis is so different than the financial crisis of 2008 in that it has completely changed consumer behaviors, do you think companies are being much more strategic 
in their acquisitions. They have found that they have certain weaknesses that they didn't even know were existed before the pandemic. Is it a, a real strategic opportunity when it comes to, to M&A in this environment? Indeed, I do think it is a strategic opportunity. Uh, I think what we're finding, uh, so many companies, for example, is, is seeing where they needed to move more quickly you know, into the digital space. Now, that may be because of uh, the crisis itself, you know, forcing so many people to be at home, whether it be work from home, go to school from home, go to the doctor from home. Everything ends with for home. And as a result of that, you know, we, we have seen uh, many companies, many clients, you know, who are looking at their digital strategy. You know, that digital strategy will require them uh, to not only build things internally, but given the speed at which things move, you know, also to look at assets on the market. Uh, and that's why I say when we look at tech uh, in today's market, it, it's much more than just traditional tech companies. Uh, it's companies in all sectors who either are or we can anticipate will be looking at these assets. And I think it will make for a, a very interesting set of deal making, but, but only once companies reach the point where they feel comfortable that they are secure enough that they can move to the M&A markets to do that. And Lisa, what are your thoughts on lessons learned from the 2008 financial crisis? I mean, what do you see as the key indicators that you look for when it comes to signs of a recovery? When, it, when we're looking back and comparing this crisis to, to the global financial crisis, I think it's important to highlight, we see this as a much deeper crisis globally and if you look at EMs our current forecasts we have growth or contraction really in emerging markets excluding China of almost 5% this year in 2009 it was it's only a contraction of 0.8 for EMs globally in LATAM we have growth contracting over 7% this year versus an around 2% contraction in the global financial crisis. So much deeper, and there's probably a little bit more downside risk to that too. Our forecast at S&P vis-a-vis what you have, for example, at the IMF, the hit to foreign trade was deeper than we initially thought besides the blow to domestic demand, everything coming together. When you think of the hit through the global supply chains, et cetera. So it's different. It's a different contour, as Mike highlighted. It's not, it wasn't led by the financial system. The growth pickup in the global financial, post the global financial crisis in Latin America was a, a bounce that we don't see happening this time around. Part of that could have been coming from um, fiscal positions. If you look at the global financial crisis, you had fiscal stimulus put in across the region in various effects. However, if you look at debt levels today in the large economies in the region, government debt burdens, they're at least 10 percentage points higher for the big ones. Mexico, Brazil, Colombia, Argentina's doubled. Granted, we have a restructuring on underway there. Chile, much higher, although at a very low base. Still, that gives a flexibility. Peru actually was the only country in the region that reduced its debt levels post the global financial crisis and then now has been running it up. That's also, it, it, they, they have some strength there. All of this to say there's less fiscal space today across the region because stimulus that was put in place was never fully withdrawn or adjusted. That is a lesson to think about 
the, the aftermath of policy uh, response and the appropriate timing to pull away stimulus. In terms of signs of recovery, when you can see the insights into investor sentiment um, turning, that's going to be the leading indicator. I say investment sentiment, trade dynamics potentially as well. The consumer, in, in terms of the unemployment indicator, is going to be the lagging one. Anna, for those who are looking to make an acquisition, what are some of the regulatory issues that investors really need to be aware of when considering distressed debt? If it is a listed company, uh, just to start, it needs to act in full compliance with the requirements of uh, the relevant Security Exchange Commission. If it is in judicial restructuring, complying with the rules in place, as well as uh, any antitrust rules and filings uh, which are needed. And even less flexible nowadays in several countries due to the protective environment we are living. Uh, Public service concessionaires shall uh, comply uh, with the relevant sectors, laws and regulations, of course. But in several countries, those uh, regulatory rules were, uh, and several new ones were enacted to protect public service and help them to pass through this uh, pandemic period. If buyer is a foreign entity, usually registrations with the central banks or foreign investment regulatory authorities are also required. And with the COVID-19 and its effect to enter economies, we see the rising of national protectionism and stronger screening of foreign investments across the globe. So some uh, governments, especially in Europe, now taking steps to protect companies which have uh, become more vulnerable, especially in strategic uh, sectors, is a huge trend especially when dealing with um, medical or pharmaceutical healthcare uh, or public concessionaries products or service, uh, for example. So while uh, we believe most cross-border transactions have a high likelihood of being approved, those, is, uh, and most especially the ones in strategic sectors, may face a longer approval process at this volatile time. So taking the time to understand early in the deal process the rules and identify a regulatory strategy, including appropriate communications with the relevant authorities, for example, and the impact on the deal documentation, such as uh, if any special closing condition is required, this can minimize delays or last-minute changes to the deal structure, or even failed transactions. Latin America is likely to be one of the last to exit this pandemic. Lisa, what do you think that means for the region's recovery and how can tightening credit conditions impact M&A activity? The pandemic is clearly the most severe there, so that's gonna add some you know, lag, which is our expectation. The recovery in the region is subpar globally. We have a you know the hit of over seven percent this year, recovery of three to four percent next year. But importantly, there are going to be lasting losses. If we look at the trajectory of growth over the next couple of years over our forecast horizon, this is a lasting hit. And I think that's an, an important point to highlight. A slower a very subpar recovery. 
And there are structural issues going on here. I mean, if you look at the track record of growth in Argentina, Brazil, Mexico, that has lagged in recent years, very much so, aggravated by fiscal weaknesses, in particular in debt levels in Brazil and Argentina, external weaknesses in Argentina. So all of this plays a role in what we view as going to be hampering a pickup in investment as well, as these debt levels will remain quite high and impede the growth story. Just the, the financing conditions in general have improved. They're not back to the beginning levels of, of 2020. But if you look at the spreads overall for the region in the secondary market, they're, they're below their peaks, still somewhat higher than the beginning of the year. And you have governments issuing corporates to a lesser degree. So across the rating spectrum in the sovereign world, you have sovereigns getting into the market. I think a bit by bit, higher rated corporates are. But I think one of the things to keep in mind is as the conditions have eased somewhat, there's important you know, to, to look for differentiation and keeping in mind the credit profile where higher graded investment grade sovereigns are going to be in a better position in general to weather the storm given policy predictability and inherently lower uh, fundamental risks on the fiscal or the external profile compared with the very low speculative grade credit. Now, Annie, you've talked us through the regulatory issues involved when it comes to M&A deals in this environment, but can you talk us now through what a distressed M&A sales process looks like and in what ways those distressed transactions are structured maybe differently from a traditional M&A transaction? Yeah, sure. Uh, Usually, you may structure the deal as a share or asset deal. You can go through the process of purchasing an isolated unity uh, within a judicial reorg or not, or could be structured through spin-off of a company. The due diligence now more focus on the solvency risks, but the process tends to run faster than usual M&A, as the parties cannot await long periods to close the deal, or the seller may face even more uh, financial issues. The valuation process is difficult than ever in a so unpredicted scenario, being hard to foresee future earnings in a so uncertain uh, market considering a global recession that Lisa uh, was talking about. In this scenario, we are seeing more use of earnout mechanisms based on seller's performance as a way to bridge the valuation gap. Covenants and conditions on how to run the business during this earnout uh, period are heavily negotiated as well. So what happens if there is a second wave of COVID, for example? Uh, it may take days discussing a win-win uh, mutually Uh, beneficial conditions. We are also seeing discussions on the so-called anti-embarrassment clause, where buyer has to pay an additional price to seller in case buyer sells uh, the target for a big profit in a short time frame. So clauses uh, in the acquisition documents, such as uh, material diverse effect and force majeure, are another point of huge discussions these days. 
uh, with buyers willing to include as most extensive as possible and sellers seeking to eliminate them, and in turn being more open to provide robust reps and warrants and indemnity protections to move to a more expedited closing. Reps and warrants are usually less focused on historical financial information of uh, the target company and more relevant on current risks such as cyber securities, remote operations, digital solutions, health, regulatory and uh, governance uh, issues. Because a prediction is uh, much more difficult, so reps and warrants are more broadly uh, given, and in turn, the reps and warrants insurance became even more expensive, but it's still being used in, in a few cases. There is also this new way of uh, conducting uh, business and deals with virtual solutions for due diligence, management presentations, meetings, negotiations. So it's more difficult to establish trust and uh, goodwill between the parties, which sometimes is key to the successful closing of a transaction. The good side of it is the save on time and cost, for sure. So avoiding commuting, long face-to-face -face meetings, traveling plans and uh, schedules, uh, conflicting schedules, and the deal tend uh, to move faster. As a final comment, considering the sensitive and volatile moment uh, we are all facing, we are seeing not only M&A activity, uh, as we mentioned before, but also I believe it is a time for companies to look at joint ventures and other type of associations and consolidations of business in order to strengthen their uh, status and get through uh, this crisis. So, Mike, on the back of what Anna just said, you know, what are some other transactions you're seeing? Or, or you know, are, are companies looking to shed a lot of non-core assets? Are they being more strategic in, in getting rid of, um, you know, non-core parts of their business? You know, Jen, I, I think that is something we're, we're going to see. You know, we've seen that in prior financial crises. It's, it's a natural part of the playbook of dealing with situations when you need liquidity. Uh, companies looking at their non-core assets and, and divesting them in, in carve-out transactions. And I think in connection with that, with private equity sponsors having, I, I think someone said the private equity market has $1.7 in cash to deploy right now. I think we can expect PE sponsors looking at those types of transactions. You know, certainly corporates who are looking to build up uh, in their assets and who are in a position to do so, you know, would also be looking at those types of transactions. So I, I believe as we look at the next couple of years, you're going to see quite a few uh, of those transactions out there. That's also part of the playbook if activists uh, are, are reaching out uh, and coming after corporates, uh, divestitures of non-core assets is something we've seen historically, and I think we could expect to see that uh, going forward. Now you've touched on it, but my last question for all of you is this this cash that some private equity investors are sitting on and estimated, as you say, up to $2 trillion in cash right now. If I could ask each of you um, to pretend for a moment that you're a, you're a private equity investor, would you be waiting it out a little longer or would you be out there looking for a bargain right now? And Lisa, if I can start with you. I think the key thing 
I would highlight at the moment is the degree of uncertainty. And the contour of this crisis is very different. And therefore, I think the recovery is also going to be different, potentially fits and starts. And certainly in Latin America, we see a, a, a very sluggish recovery, as I highlighted. When I go from that very big macro statement, I think going within sectors, I think you can see in the complexities there, within the service sectors, there are winners and losers. And I think gleaning how you think a particular sub-segment with, you know, digital, what have you, versus tourism, where those strengths can be over time, or weaknesses, right, to give you alert, not not to go into a, a certain area. I think that that's key. Thinking about how nimble, resilient, how outside-of-the-box thinking um, might be happening within a company or within a sector. I think the other aspect, you can think, uh, looking at Mexico, very much inserted in uh, global supply chains, etc. The reinforcement of NAFTA in its new configuration of USMCA, could that provide an additional boost given the dynamics between the U.S. and China on, on the global stage? To, what does that mean for a North America kind of focus for the quote-unquote nearshoring? Then that you could step back for the region. How could you strengthen intra-regional ties. Uh, I think those are some ways to think about opportunities across the region and within sectors. And Anna, you're sitting on $2 trillion in cash right now. (laughs) (laughs) I would certainly look for a bargain. (laughs) And uh, choosing um, amongst certain industries, and uh, like Lisa uh, mentioned, uh, the ones which will certainly recover their values uh, more quickly. Because despite the potential risks involved in a transaction or in a deal right now, uh, most of the distressed assets which are capable to survive this crisis, I believe will be excellent assets for an acquisition and resale in the near future. Also, just a last comment, uh, in some economies such as mine in Brazil, where we have this huge devaluation of local currency, local assets are much less expensive now than it will likely be in the future. So I think it's the time. And Mike, what would you do with $2 trillion in cash right now? Building on what, what Anna was saying, I certainly would be looking for a bargain. I agree with everything that Anna and Lisa both said. As I was doing it, you know, I would certainly want to look to ways to see how I could mitigate my risk you know, even further, um, whether that three be through valuation techniques uh, or other other approaches. Uh, but I do think this this could be a real opportunity. Uh, and as as Jen, as you said earlier, the, the McKinsey study mentioned just how profitable it was for companies in the last downturn. Uh, and this could be another opportunity for that. All right, everybody. Well, thank you. Thank you all for joining me today. This was terrific. Thanks for your time. For those listening, we'd love to hear from you. Feel free to send any comments or questions to 3rpodcast at bakermckenzie.com. That's the number three, the letter R, podcast at bakermckenzie.com. Or contact us through the Baker McKenzie social media accounts. Use the hashtag resilience, recovery, renewal. More information on this topic is also available on our website 
at bakermckenzie.com.